Welcome to our special Friday Dispatch podcast. I am your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes. This podcast is brought to you by The Dispatch. Visit thedispatch.com to see our full slate of newsletters and podcasts. And make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. Today, we're joined by Jane Koston. She's a senior politics reporter at Vox with a focus on conservatism and the American right. But perhaps more importantly than that, Spending an hour getting to peek inside Jane's brain is a special treat. She's high energy, she's funny, and she synthesizes different strains of history and politics and news of the day, all at a super fast pace. I highly recommend following her on Twitter, finding her stuff on Vox anytime you can. I'm a huge Jane fan, so today was definitely a special treat for me. Let's dive in with Jane. Jane, uh, it's, you know, maybe I turn to data in times like these as a comfort. Um, A lot of polls out recently, ABC just this morning said that uh, nearly three-fourths of Americans view the death of George Floyd at the hands of a white police officer as a sign of an underlying racial injustice problem. A significant shift from just six years ago, a 30-point increase from December 2014 uh, when the Black Lives Matter movement really became a national household name. Uh, there's CBS had pulled out earlier that found um, 61% of Americans said the race was a major factor in Floyd's death. But we're starting to see a partisan gap. Uh, 87% of Democrats in that question said that race was a major major factor. Only 39% of Republicans did. However, when it comes to the president's handling of the situation, uh, 65% of Republicans approved how he was handling of the situation, which is far lower than the 84% who approved of how he's handling the coronavirus pandemic, for example. You write a lot about the conservative movement, the Republican Party, uh, for Vox, which is, you know, just some of the best explaining out there. How are you absorbing this as you look at conservative movement, Republican Party, Trump supporters? So I think about it in a couple of different ways, and I want to break them down one by one. Um, First and foremost, I think it's interesting that our first focus, and I understand why this is, and I don't think it's bad, and I'll get to why I think that. I think the focus on on thinking about this as being, you know, I'm going to say simply an issue of race, but obviously the issue of race is multifaceted and incredibly complex. When we are, what we are thinking about is what happened in the case of George Floyd is that an officer of the law took the life of another person on video. Um, slowly smothering and asphyxiating a person for ne- for nearly nine minutes. You know, whether that had happened to a white person or whether it had happened to a black person or whether it happened to anyone for any reason. And let's not forget that what George Floyd was being arrested for was for passing a purportedly counterfeit $20 bill, which is a nonviolent offense. It is a felony because uh, counterfeiting is a felony offense, but it is a, obviously a nonviolent crime. Right. This is very different than those sort of exigent circumstances in the moment. We're not sure things are happening. Right. 
Right. You know, this is not a case, um, despite the efforts of uh, Minneapolis's police union, who seems to be engaged in like, what would you have to do to make people hate police unions? (laughs) That seems to be what the Minneapolis police union is like laser focused on doing. Well, we might Um, need to talk about Buffalo Police Department in a little bit, because I think they're, yeah, they're giving them a run for their money there. It's true. Um, So I think that the focus for me has been on the wielding of power by officers purportedly of the law and doing so in general with few consequences. The fact that this has all happened so relatively quickly, it's extremely rare. And, you know, and I I think I can point to the case of um, Amud Arbery, which let's keep in mind that the murder of, and I will call it a murder because this is me talking and I'm allowed to do that. Um, The murder of our our very took place in February and we're in the midst of proceedings taking place now that are just because the person who, you know, a video got out because a defense attorney believed that some way it would help the people who did it, which that's a whole separate question. But, you know, that was a case that happened months ago. And because people involved had experience with law enforcement, law enforcement in that area were apparently entirely willing to let it go. And so I think that the the question of race here, for me, is not top of mind. It is a part of this. It is a part of the context in which George Floyd died. It is a part of the context in which you know, the police union could say that he was being, you know, he was a violent criminal. When you watch that video and you're like, "Mm, you've got like four people and you've got one person. And, you know, so much of this seems to imply that police officers are the stalwart champions of the law, but they're also weak and tiny little corgis. And like, you can't have both. You can't have both arguments here. You got to pick one. And so, and, you know, and I think that that goes to how some of this is polling in some ways, because I think that, you know, if you think about this in terms of an often, you know, people we expect to uphold the law, people we give extraordinary powers, the power to kill on the basis of the state. If those people are failing and not just failing, they are committing crimes of their own. We view that, I think, across the country as being a problem. And I'll actually say that, you know, it was interesting because I kind of wanted to make that meme of like the two hands coming together because you saw a lot of people um, during the anti-shutdown protests who were like, these police officers who are enforcing the shutdown are out of control. Like, how could they do this? They're just running rampant. And I'm like, yes, police officers running rampant. They're enforcing the law, but they're, you know, they're violating the law that they're supposed to be enforcing. I don't know if I've ever heard of that before, <laughs> but, you know, and, and I think it's important to know that like the, the types of the way that George Floyd died, the way that African-American men and women have died in police custody is not just happening to black people. It's happening to people like Daniel Shaver, who was shot to death while sobbing hysterically on his knees. And the police officer who shot him was not only went unpunished, but he also received a full pension. And, you know, I saw a couple of conservatives discussing, you know, you've never heard of this case because this person is white, as if like, ah, like, that's a get out of jail free card. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, it's not better when the person who is being murdered by police is white. It's not 
you know, that is, I think, an example again of what's taking place here. That said, I want to get to the point that race clearly played a role here. Race clearly was a determinant of why the types of, um, you know, chokeholds or why these types of police strategies were used is because this particular quote unquote offender was believed to be more violent or believed to be more of a threat than others. You know, I think that people, people bring this up all the time and I'm aware that there are mitigating contexts to it, but I'll never forget the day that Dylan Roof was arrested and Dylan Roof was arrested with no incident. And the police officers who arrested him, the person who killed um, nine African-American people in a church, they arrested him and they got him lunch on the way. And I, you know, I do not object to people feeding people because I'm a Christian and that's not how this works. But I do object to the fact that someone who had committed such a violent act because of their positionality and because of who they were, were not believed to be currently then violent. Whereas George Floyd was believed to be so much of a threat as an individual who had passed allegedly a counterfeit $20 bill that he necessitated four people kneeling on him. And so I think that that is a key here. And I also think, though, that when people see this incident, they are not just seeing the murder of George Floyd. The reason why that, you know, all of this is happening is not just because of George Floyd. It is because of the precipitating cases that have happened. It is because this has been happening for years and now it's happening on video. And, um, you know, there have been a lot of people capturing videos, even during the protests of police brutality. And we're seeing, you know, the case out of Buffalo. We're seeing a lot of this for the first time. I remember, you know, but what makes the Buffalo case, by the way, I think so important to your point Mm -hmm. is not just that it's on video. um, And and for listeners who haven't seen it, it is a video of the uh, of an elderly man uh, as the police move forward. He is facing the police. He's maybe trying to say something to them. It's unclear. He doesn't appear to be a protester, though he might be. And they shove him. He falls backwards, hits his head, and starts bleeding from the head and appears to be unconscious. Uh, And they sort of move around him as they continue to move on the protesters. But uh, So it's a horrible video. But I think what makes it egregious is that the police department put out a statement that someone had tripped and fallen and it right. was a lie. And without the video, you don't, you would not know we for sure that it was a lie. And so why the videos are important is because they directly contradict what we're being told. And it makes you go back to every time we were told something without a video and scare the hell out of you. Right. Exactly. Because you start thinking, um, you know, I was going to say that when I, I grew up in Cincinnati and in April, 2001, a uh, police officer shot an unarmed black kid named Timothy Thomas. And, you know, the resulting protests and violence that, you know, Cincinnati was put under a curfew. I think correspondingly, and I've always thought about this, that April was unusually hot in Cincinnati. Like, I remember being like 85, 87 degrees, and I was like in eighth grade, and this was, it was very, it was a lot. But yeah, like, you know, we don't, we don't have a video of that. There wasn't body cam of that. We don't know, like, the, you know, what the officers in that case claimed was like, oh, he was moving towards his waistband. And we have no idea. And I think that that's been something that I think is influencing a lot of this for a lot of Americans is not only do we have this case on video, but we have so many other cases now 
where it seems as if the police acted, you know, there wasn't an exigent fear. There wasn't an exigent fear in the case of Breonna Taylor. There was a no-knock raid signed by a judge based on postal, you know, postal evidence that the postal union said that they didn't give them, or the postal inspector, rather. Uh, you know, there is video in Ahmoud Arbery's case, four minutes of, you know, a man being chased by people in a truck. And so I think what is reflective of a lot of this polling is, you know, people seeing all of this taking place and all of this happening in this overarching context and people, you know, who in 2014 weren't sure, you know, you've seen, I've actually been thinking a lot about um, Colin Kaepernick. And if you search um, right now, I was wrong, Colin Kaepernick. There are all these people on Twitter who are like, you know, in 2014, I told, I said that you sucked. In 2015, I, you know, I hated you, but I was wrong, and I understand now what you were trying to do. And I think that there are a lot of people in 2014, 2015 who saw this in a very different context. Who saw this as, you know, the Obama, Obama administration failing to keep an eye on the cities, as you know, this, you know race baiting, which I think is actually one of the most abhorrent terms um, that can be used. It's up there with outside agitator. That is a term where I'm like, we got to find another one because it just, to me, just makes you sound like it's 1965 um, and you're in Birmingham, Alabama. But I think people are now willing, especially with a crisis in institutions in general. Um, You know, I've been wondering if for a lot of conservatives who've been paying a lot of attention um, to the Michael Flynn case, where they've been told over and over again about how, you know, the federal law enforcement failed, federal law enforcement did this to this man, you know, people who were supposed to know better didn't, people put politics over their job. You know, if you want to see an example at the local level of law enforcement not doing their job, it's here you go. We've got dozens of examples. Welcome. You know, we're that's ready a to have this conversation. Yeah, that's a fascinating combo there. And um, I don't and I think that that's been um I think that that's been particularly infuriating for a lot of people. I think especially if people who are libertarian leaning is that the same questions people are willing to ask of federal law enforcement. People, you know, who distrust the FBI for the many reasons you might distrust the FBI, who think of their local law enforcement very differently. And we see that in um polling that, you know, you distrust law enforcement, but you like local police. Because Same with your congressman. <laughs> right, exactly. Because you might know officers on the beat or it just feels more familiar. I think people are starting to ask those questions of local law enforcement as well, especially seeing you know, all of these videos. And you know, uh, the only thing I'll say about Trump here, because I actually think that our tendency in media to make things about Trump, where I actually think that this is, this is an issue that doesn't need him, and this is an issue on which he does not help. Um, you know, I, I fear I, you know, I, I've said this before, but sometimes I've theorized that Trump conceived of winning the presidency like you win an Olympic gold medal. When you win an Olympic gold medal, you do not have to then like preside over the Olympics for four years. No one's going <laughs> to yeah, ask done. you to like, you know, you get a parade, you're done. That's it. Congratulations. Good job. And I think that a lot of people who voted for him for their various reasons, you know, there is an understanding that he would either not be as bad as Hillary Clinton or not be as bad as Obama or that something would something else would happen. And during a time of relative peace and prosperity, you know, he, 
he would do what you wanted him to do, which is yell about the media and stand up for whomever he's supposed to be standing up for. And he wouldn't really need to do anything, which that clearly hasn't exactly worked out. But I think that what we're seeing in a lot of the polling is a real recognition that this is a problem. And what I would ask people to say is that, you know, if you are seeing people or if you have that, you know, like, but what about the time police killed this white guy? I'm like, yes, exactly. Congratulations. Yes, here we are. Like, welcome. This is a this is a bipartisan 50 state issue. You know what the cases that we're seeing, you know, like Buffalo, that's in the you know Democratic stronghold of New York state that, you know, we're seeing police violence in Los Angeles and, um, you know, Mayor Eric Garcetti essentially letting the LAPD run rampant over protesters and then essentially saying like, oh, you know, we'll get them to take implicit bias training, which has its own long history and of which I'm very skeptical instead of, you know, actual things that he could actually do. You know, this is not an issue in which you can just say like, well, you know, this is a Democrat issue or a Republican issue, because so much of this is based on the power of police unions. And so much of this is based on the on voters of all parties. You know, the people with hate has no place here signs still being willing to call the police every time something vaguely sketchy happens that they see on next door. You know, that's <laughs> like the that is a bipartisan practice. That is a bipartisan practice of the same. You know, I think that what I hope is happening, I don't know what will happen because no one does, but what I hope is happening is a recognition that this is an overarching problem that is almost untethered to who is in the presidency right now. I will, I will, I, I will amend that to say that you know, the Trump administration has done a lot to take away oversight of local police departments, um, oversight that was clearly very much necessary. But I would say that you know, this is a moment to really take stock and, and for Americans of all political ilks to be asking a lot of questions of whom they vote for and why. Can I, can I follow up on Steve, that? Yeah, I've got yes, a, of course. <laughs> I've got a, I mean, it's interesting because there's so many reasons as you watch what's happened um, throughout the country over the past couple of weeks to be just incredibly discouraged. And there's so many people I talk to and that's the sort of, overwhelming um, sentiment, you know, whether it's discouraged because of what we're actually seeing on our, on our television screens, on our computers, whether it's being discouraged because we're still so far from the, the promise of the country um, that I think people thought we maybe had made more progress towards, whether it's discouraged just because of the precipitating event. I mean, the, the, the George Floyd video is just such a it it's such a picture of humanity that people prefer not to see you prefer not to confront because it's right so awful but i wondered listening to you talk whether there might also be um reason for some optimism as I listen to you, you know, talking about talking about the video, that's one of the things that I've been struck by throughout this whole thing is we're seeing all this stuff. And obviously these are extraordinary circumstances and we're seeing far more police activity and it's so much more of it's being recorded. And there's obviously scrutiny on police now because of the issues that we're all discussing. 
But I do think it, it's been eye-opening to some extent for people to, to see this, for people to see the video of the, the park police guy smashing the, the Australian you know, right. cameraman in the face, to see the video of this poor fellow in, in Buffalo who was knocked backwards, to see the video. I mean, I thought, for me, one of the most affecting things I've seen in this whole, uh, this, this whole, uh, episode was the cops who pulled the young black couple out of the car in, in Atlanta. Just ex- right. extraordinary. Yep. Like you watched in the, the entire time you're watching, you're saying, what are you doing? Like, they're not doing it. What are you, why are you doing this? And to see this sort of look of, of pained horror, particularly on the, on the female's face for people who have seen that video, all of this to say, we're seeing this stuff, right? Does that I mean, are, does, are, does that can, can seeing, that affect change? Because we're I seeing it's so. no longer theoretical; it's no longer abstract. We're watching this happen. We're seeing this, and I think that that can affect real change. I mean, I think that you're already starting to people see people, uh, you know, talk about ending qualified immunity and talking about making real reforms to policing and you know limiting the power of policing and limiting the militarization of policing. But my concern is that I think that now I'll, I'll say this: that one of the challenges, and I think that we've all seen found this in our work, is that a lot of times, if you want to hear from people, you go see what people are saying on social media. But the people who are saying things on social media are not the most important, but they are also the most loud. Yes. And so one thing that concerns me is, um, I talked about this before, but I think many people have a sense of personal libertarianism. Personal libertarianism in that, like, I should be able to do whatever I want. You know, before we started recording, we were talking um, about someone's children being kind of like feral libertarians who want to do everything and they can't explain why they can't. Um, and I think many of us in, in our own way see, you know, we are fine if we break the law because we understand our full reasonings. And I think that, you know, and when I say break the law, I mean like jaywalking, which is technically um, a misdemeanor offense in many localities, including, for instance, the state of Florida. Um, Jaywalking, speeding, uh, slow rolling a stop sign. You know, a lot of these kind of small ticky-tack penalties that either law enforcement doesn't enforce at all or they enforce at the barrel of a gun, as we've seen. And so my concern, though, is that you see some people who are like, well, you know, if that elderly guy in Buffalo had just gotten out of the way, and it's funny because a lot of these people on the internet are also people with like, don't tread on me headers and their <laughs> bios. And I'm just like, it's like, no, 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 don't tread on me. But those people tread all over them. And that's my concern is that sometimes we are taking in a bunch of information. We have access, we're taking in a bunch of data and information and we are processing it in the best way we can. And my concern is that our inherent personal libertarianism the kind of the rules apply to other people, but not to me. I think something that we all do, you know, we all jaywalk, but if we found out that someone else got arrested for jaywalking, we'd be like, well, that's the, you know, like it's, it is a crime, <laughs> but it's just, you know, it's when I do it, it's very different. So my concern though, is that in a lot of these instances, we want to make sense out of it. And sometimes I think that that comes from people who are, doing so in a way that that mitigates the responsibility of law enforcement. Now, you know, 
But I don't think that that's going to happen on kind of a mass scale. I, I bet that is something that I'm concerned about. I think that more people are thinking about this than have before. Um, and I think because the, the role of government is bigger in our lives than it has been, I think, for many people ever before. And sometimes I think that occasionally people, um, conservatives forget that law enforcement counts as being part of the government when people are like, oh, big government. And then they're like, oh, but our beautiful police unions, we should cover them in flowers. We love them. Um, you know, I'm like, no, 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 that's all part of the same thing. And so I think that I am hopeful, but I'm also concerned that we will start making excuses in some of these cases because we we think of ourselves as being full actors in our own lives. But sometimes I don't think what you think that about other people. As uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi said, she was going to introduce a police reform bill. You mentioned the qualified immunity bill that Justin Amash has introduced that has been joined by, I think, 16 Democrats in the House. The Senate has its version as well with a bunch of senators uh, on it, Democratic senators and Democratic members of the House. Do you see a future legislative fix to any of this? Um, I think that, well, I think that one of the challenges here is that there are going to be a lot of people who are like, let's introduce a bill in Congress. And I'm like, yes, and then we need to introduce a bill in like every state legislature. And then also we need to go to our local governments and ask a lot of questions about the police unions here. Because let's keep in mind that the, you know, what we've seen on the streets of many cities has been the police officers using military-grade equipment that is literally from the military. That is because of a program that the Obama administration, I believe, ended, and then the Trump administration started again. So you know, you are seeing small town, relatively small cities and small towns with weapons that I think for many, um, you know, many service members they remember using like during the invasion of Basra. And so this will be a multi-tier effort. And we've seen in, you know, for instance, Camden, New Jersey, when we're talking about like defunding the police, Camden, New Jersey basically dismantled its police department and then brought in other people. And then they established a police union under different settings than the police union that they had before. So, and that that's going to be the type of reform that might be necessary. And that reform might look different in different places. I think that you know, when we're talking about, for instance, New York, where they have, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of police officers, an extraordinarily powerful police union, you know, the reform that will be necessarily there is going to be different than the reform that's necessary in, say, Zeno, Ohio. And so would you say then, I I mean, it, it sort of sounds like you're almost saying there could also be on the on the Republican side, uh, maybe some movement there. But on the Democratic side, I keep hearing you mention police unions. Could we see a falling off of support for unions in general? I think that for many people, um, police unions have, I I think for me, and I'm still working through how I think about this because I'm the member of a union. I like my union, but it's the Writers Guild of America. The Writers Guild of America, as far as I know, I get Oscar screeners. I do not have the power to kill on behalf of the state. And so I think that the you know, one of the big challenges now is that um, you know police unions are starting to see Democratic nom- uh, you know candidates for office saying that they'll um, 
give back any donations made by police unions because part of why police unions have gained so much power, there's a terrific piece in Reason today about this, is essentially because of you know the the ways in which police unions are both used and use political power um, or for political power. And so how many local, you know, if you live in D.C., you get the political ads for Maryland and Virginia, which is kind of hilarious because there are a lot of people telling me about how I can vote in things that I cannot vote in. Um, but how many ads have you seen that are just like, you know, when this person did this, they took a tough stance on crime, you know, a real law and order approach that's really, you know, caring about our safe streets and safety. You know, there are certain touchstones that we see in political advertising about law and safety and security. And all of that are is you know, a play towards the middle voter. The voter who may vote Democrat, may vote Republican, but they're in the center. They're kind of that, you know, when we, we talk about, um, you know, the people who are most turned off by Trump after maybe voting for him in 2016, you're talking about like some suburb, suburban white women who aren't like raging liberals, but they are like radical conservatives kind of in the middle. And that's to whom those ads that frequently mention or talk about security and safety and law and order, that's what they're meant to appeal to. And so there are politicians who for years have talked out of both sides of their mouths about the need for police reform, but also accepting a lot of money from police unions because they know they need that for you know, political purposes. So this is going to be a long running process because you're going to have to see candidates say like, you know what, if the police union doesn't support me, that's okay. I, you know, the people who the police police support me, um, the people who care about reform support me. The people who care, who know that law and order can only exist under the rule of law and true order, that's who supports me. So I think that, um, you know, the issue of police unions is going to be a long running one, especially because, you know, public sector unions themselves, keep in mind that, you know, for a lot of the largest public sector unions, police unions, teachers unions, all of them are all under one big umbrella. And so you're going to have, and you're already starting to see, you know, some people say like, why can't we get police unions out of here? They do something very different. And you've seen in, you know, politically, uh, for example, when Scott Walker in the state of Wisconsin attempted to kind of break the back of public sector unions, you'll notice he left out police unions. And they left out firefighter unions. And then he both he got support from both of those groups in multiple rounds of elections. And so I think that it'll be interesting to see how police unions fit into this conversation because conservatives have tended to support the police unions because of the word police, and Democrats have tended to support police unions because of the word unions. And so both, you know, and police unions have benefited from both of those. And that has led to their overarching power and to the overwhelming in sentiment divide they have from, you know, the entire concept of the thin blue line. I don't know if people saw pictures of this, but in Cincinnati, you know, there was a Cincinnati police department. Uh, they took down their American flag and then they put up the version of the American flag with the thin blue line because apparently altering the flag is awesome when they do it. Um, and so, you know, this idea that you are, you know, they are this separate bulwark against like the forces of evil, you know, you, you send them to the wall, you know, to guard the North or something, but they do this other thing over there. And, you know, I think that we've gotten very far away from the police being people who you just know. 
And, um, you know, the police now being thought of as it's almost this separate culture, a separate community. And I think that that is something that is very concerning. And that lends to why, you know, the heads of police unions in multiple cities always sound as if they are only talking to the police officers and they do not care anything about anyone else, including the people they're policing. You, you, you do wonder, you wonder if, um, to pick up on Sarah's point, if, if this is sort of part of the, the ongoing scrambling of our politics that we've seen, because the, the conservative cr- critique of teachers unions forever has been that basically unions are there to shield teachers from accountability. Um, I think the same critique is made broadly by the left against police unions, right? I mean, that's the problem with police unions. This is the argument that we're hearing right now is unions get in the way of, um, you know, determining accountability or carrying out accountability for officers who, who are bad. Therefore, we have too many officers who are bad. It is sort of the, the mirror image of the conservative critique of, of teachers unions. And I wonder whether this is a moment that gets everybody to kind of rethink where they come from on, on that. Yeah, I think it's challenging because, again, um, you know, I am not a one of you. Know, I think that we can all agree that one of the challenges of doing this work is to have, you know, how to talk about something when you feel very intensely about it. And so even while you were talking, I was like, well, police don't, you know, police unions have they've got guns and many means by which to kill people. And teachers unions have teachers which is different, but the future of our kids in their hands, you could argue. Yes. Yes. That's see, again, that's true. And so I think that that's going to be a big challenge because I think that I have seen many people um, specifically on the right, making that argument of like, you know, the same critiques that we have of police unions, Democrats have of, uh, of teachers, the same critique that conservatives have of teachers unions, we uh, Democrats have of police unions. So just eliminate public sector unions and you solve this problem. And I think that it's going to be more complicated than that because of the exact hesitancy that I'm having and the exact hesitancy that I think that many conservatives might be having about police unions. The same people who are like, when is to abolish the Department of Education are probably thinking like, whoa, 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 whoa. But police unions help protect police. Well, this is, I mean, nobody nobody will accuse me of being uh, overly optimistic about our politics, (laughs) particularly in the last five years. But this is... This is, I think, another moment where I say that's a good thing, right? I mean, what I think you're seeing is you're you're taking these sort of reflexive positions that that people have had on either side. And and maybe in the process of all of this chaos and all of this discouraging news that we're seeing, getting people to sort of stop and think about it. Or is it really just a small group of people who are stopping and thinking about it and everything will just revert back to, to the way it was. I don't think things will revert back because I think that, you know, for one thing, I don't know if things ever really do in general. Um, I think that the conversations that we're having um, and the polling reflects this indicate that people are hungry for real change. Um, you know, I've seen just in DC, I've seen people taking part in protests who genuinely had never done so in their lives. Sure. And I think we're hearing that from a lot of people. You know, you've got, you know, I'm um, I'm 32 and I have friends whose parents who are just like, you know, I've never been in a protest in my life, but I'm doing, I'm taking part in this protest in Appleton, Wisconsin, or, you know, 
go into a protest in, you know, small towns in Indiana. Um, and I think that that is reflective of an overall mood. And I think that the context matters here, the context of, you know, being in the midst of a pandemic that I think many people think was handled very poorly by all yeah. sides. And I think that it takes place amidst of a, a real crisis of authority that I think has been fomented by certain people. And it's been kind of entertaining to see the same people who are like, you know, it's time to stand up to the deep state. And then there's like, well, you know, the park police said they didn't do this. So, right. okay. Where I'm just like, but <laughs> we just, you know, you got my anti-government dander up and you can't, you can, no, no, no. Like we're, we're staying in this. Um, so I, but I do think that this is the time in which the people who want to be in authority, they want to be in a position of authority. They need to prove to the American people why they deserve it. And they need to prove that, you know, why they should be the ones to wield power or even what kinds of power they should wield at all. You know, I think that, um, I always joke that, uh, <laughs> the, you know, do you, do you remember in like 2012, 2013, that there are a lot of like, is this the libertarian moment articles? And it turns yes. out it was not. It was not. Because <laughs> whenever that's the libertarian moment, in general, the libertarian party has responded by like being like, do you want to talk about gold? And no one ever wants to talk about gold. <laughs> um, but I do think that this may not be the libertarian moment, but I do think that this is the libertarian leaning conversation touch point which is a much longer sentence not a good bumper sticker yeah <laughs> yeah it's not it's not but i think that this is this is the time in which if you are having you know i i was thinking about how best to tweet about this and just decided not to but you know i've i've been really usually a good instinct for except for you i like your tweets <laughs> Oh, thank you. Um, I've been very intensely bothered by the number of times I see, for instance, Democrats who are Democrats who are like, you know, this administration is doing bad things and it's full of bad people. And then because they want to see be seen doing something, they'll do things like, and that's why I'm asking the Department of Homeland Security to do this. And I'm like, wait, what? Like, no, no, you got to the Department of Homeland Security arguably should no longer exist and maybe shouldn't have been established because, you know, if we remembered that whole thing with the, the, the establishment of the security state um, as a result of September 11th, which is why we take off our shoes to get on airplanes because one person tried to bomb a plane with a shoe. And yeah, it's a whole thing. But I think that there's a real... there's a am hoping that you start to see a real understanding that challenging government power should not be a partisan cudgel. That the same Democrats who are currently voicing support for major police reforms could have done that beforehand. And that the same Republicans who during the Obama administration were talking, you know, standing athwart, pro you know, progressivism yelling stop, who are now like, actually, it'd be pretty awesome if the military like was, you know, put out against peaceful protesters. Like there's got to be a moment at which you recognize that the problem ne may not necessarily be politics. The problem here is power and the wielding of power. I want to talk about gender for a second, um, because we had I had a little disagreement with the guys last night. Um, and, you know, I get to be the the woman in that, uh, so I speak for all women 
<laughs> so I need your help on this because I'm interested whether you agree or disagree with, um, with this idea. Uh, women through history have been allies. Look at the abolition movement. Like that, there was a huge gender gap, if you will, to put a current right. term back in the 19th century on the abolition movement. Um, and yet you mentioned this earlier that suburban moms post 9-11, you know, we called them security moms and they right. were sort of pro law and order, pro safety in their community, uh, you know, get things back to not scary, let's call it. Right, exactly. But we also are seeing, I mean, in some of these polls, up to a 30-point gender gap between, you know, Trump and Biden, who would you vote for today type stuff. Uh, Trump is going very much on the law and order message. And I think they believe that will appeal to these quote-unquote security moms. My theory is that, in fact, they have missed what's going on here, and there is a gender gap in who is supporting these protests for maybe just some of these um, intuitive reasons that women have done this in the past, that, uh, yes, safety and security in my neighborhood is important, but also there is something with women where injustice stands out more injustice to others. There's a protective aspect to, to femininity, maybe. Um, no, well, disagree. It, disagree. It depends on, like, it depends on which women. Like, um, as we've, I think that you are absolutely right that what we saw after 9-11 was the security moms. And I think that so much of this conversation has been, um, you know, this is, I, I can't make people change their minds. I can't even make myself change my mind sometimes. But I do think that, you know, part of the conversation that we're not yet having, and I don't even know how we get there, is who calls the police and why? Yeah. And the understanding of what police are supposed to do. This For is instance, the Karen problem. You know, it, right. This is the Karen problem, which is a universal bipartisan issue of, you know, you call the police as your, your own personal security from things that vaguely annoy you. Um, even the entire con like noise violations or like, you know, someone's grass is too long. Like, let's keep in mind that if you are calling the police for a noise violation, you are calling people who could kill the people who are committing the noise violation. Um, I think, though, that it is not that Trump's messaging on law and order is not appealing to suburban moms. I think it is the fact that the suburban moms perhaps do not believe that Trump could actually provide the aforementioned law and order. Interesting. Um, you know, it, there's, been a, there's been a lot of comparison to 1968 uh, recently, which I think is bad because in general, as someone who, you know, I, uh, I was a history person. Um, I wrote my thesis at Michigan on Nazi propaganda before and after the Battle of Stalingrad, which is one of those things people were like, Jane, why are you talking about Nazis? When is that ever going to be useful? And then here we are. Um, <laughs> I did not want it to ever be useful. I just wanted to talk to my dad about Stalingrad. But, well, um, but, you know, the historical illusion in 1968 is that Trump would make this big law and order campaign and in response to everything, people would vote for him because, because of all these reasons. But the issue is that he's the incumbent. He can no longer pretend to be an unknown quantity. He can't be both, you know, it's, I'm aware that politics is very strange and context heavy. 
But it seems to me that asking Trump to be both the change agent who shakes things up and the guy who makes things normal again is asking him to do a lot of gymnastics that I don't know if he's entirely or this campaign is entirely prepared to do. Um, Apparently, the campaign seems to have focused on, remember everything we said in 2016? We say the opposite of that now. Um, I was very entertained to see, for instance, the Trump uh, campaign Twitter feed tweeting out some piece about how Joe Biden, along with, I think, 409 other senators, voted to give Robert E. Lee his citizenship back. And they're using this as a hit on Joe Biden, which I was like, but do you remember, like, the whole Confederate memorial thing that we were just doing? Like, I'm not three years old, so I do remember this. So it's interesting to just see them flip sides on this. But I think that the challenge is not that, like, suburban moms or any mom um, and uh, let's be clear here that sometimes when we're talking about like the working class or suburban moms, we are talking about suburban white moms and the white working class, because there are a lot of suburban moms of, of color, suburban black moms. Let's keep in mind the suburbs are far more diverse than I think how we talk about them is. Um, and residential segregation is a real thing. But if we're still thinking about suburbs and the definition that we've been using for the last 40 years, that those areas have become far more diverse. No it is not necessarily... It is not necessarily that those groups don't want security or quote unquote law and order. It is that the guy who says that he can bring them to you has spent the last several weeks um, accusing an MSNBC host of committing murder and um, ranting a lot on the Internet and um, stuff keeps happening. And the things that you don't want to happen keep happening. And the people who are supposed to stop those things may not be doing that because they're over here yelling about Joe Scarborough. And so I don't think that it has to do with any innate aspect of femininity. I think it has to do with you said that you would do this thing and you didn't do this thing. That you, know, you said sense. that I, you said, you know, I alone can fix this American carnage and the, the carnage you know, it's, we're still carnaging, you know, it's gotten carnage Um, and so I think that <laughs> that is an carnaging the carnage. Now, you know, I don't think, I don't think that you can, if I were the Biden campaign, I would not do an entire campaign about how Trump said he'd do these things and then didn't do them because you didn't want them to do them in the first place. But I do think that the, you know, the idea is not, again, that, you know, that people in suburban areas, um, you know, who see what's happening on television are not, you know, they, they have stopped wanting what they wanted before is that they still want they, what they want before. They just don't think that this president can get it to them. And I think that that is, especially because so much of this rests on the idea that you know, you see the things about like people getting, you know, Antifa coming to your small town. Antifa's not coming to your small town any more than the people who like, you know, I write about um, white nationalism and white nationalists and the same people who, like the fear, you know, the same people who are like that white nationalists are like within like every small suburban block. You know, it's kind of the same idea of using these gr- these amorphous groups as a political cudgel rather than looking what they actually are. But, you know, let's keep in mind that this is happening under the administration of the person who said that this wouldn't happen anymore. Now, Trump said a lot of things, which is, I think, in some ways, part of how 
um, you know, his election was possible. I mean, granted, his election was really possible because about 75 to 80,000 people in three states didn't vote. And because Hillary Clinton was a bad candidate and because of a lot of other contexts about specific voting numbers in the Electoral College. But a lot of this was Trump saying a lot of things and projecting onto Trump a lot of other things. But him saying, like, do you see the stuff that's happening that you don't like? I will make it stop, which is actually the best political play of all is to be like, whatever it is you don't like, I also don't like. And whatever it is you like, I also like. And it happens to be that all of these things, um, you know, if you vote for me, the things you don't like will stop and the things you do like will keep going. And that is a great political play if you are not the incumbent. And it is a great political play to people who are scared and don't like what's happening. But it is a challenge to do that when you are the person who's supposed to have made them stop happening. You know, it's sort of like, if you hear that there's a new pizza place in your block and the pizza in your area has been real bad and this new place is like, you know, all that pizza you hate, not like that. You know, the pizza you like, it'll be like that. And then four years go by and the pizza's kind of met and the pizza place seems to be like, it's closed at weird hours. And sometimes the place is on fire and the person who runs it seems to spend a lot of time, like three doors down talking about some like other pizza place owner who he really hates. And you're like, but I just, but I just want a pizza. And then you have, you know, but then he's like, no, no, no. We're like my pizza place that is currently on fire. And when it isn't on fire, doesn't really work. That's the pizza that you're going to get. That's going to be so awesome. You won't believe how great this pizza is going to be. I think that's a hard play. <laughs> okay. I think everyone now understands why I think Jane is one of the most entertaining, fun people to read about, watch her Twitter feed and talk to. Normally, we end with a, um, a fun, light question, Jane. But given the events of the two week, uh, you know, past couple of weeks, maybe the past couple of months, maybe the past couple of years, depending on where all you've been sitting, um, you posted something on Twitter that Steve and I both, uh, you know, really stopped and absorbed, I guess. Steve, is that a fair way to describe yeah, it? Yeah, kind of, it was the kind of thread that had you read it and think about it. And then think about it two hours later and think about it two hours after that and think about it two hours after that. I was wondering yeah, if um, you'd share that. Yeah. So um, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I went to Catholic schools all 13 years that you go to school. Um, I went to a high school called Ursuline Academy, which if you do not live in Cincinnati will mean nothing to you. And if you live in Cincinnati will mean a great deal to you because Cincinnati is like St. Louis. It's a bunch like like Louisville. It's the kind of Midwestern city where the first question is, where did you go to high school? And then you f you form all judgments about the person after that. Uh, so I went to Ursuline. I played lacrosse and um, it would have been March of 2002, which is just over 18 years ago that I we went on a travel trip. Uh, to play Dublin Scioto High School. Uh, Dublin, Ohio is a suburb of Columbus. Um, it is, I, I looked it up yesterday because I had, well, I was not sure of the numbers, but it is 1.8% black. Um, and so we're on this trip and I'm very excited. Um, you know, this is the first sport I'd ever played. Um, I was not an athletic kid as a kid. Um, it's funny cause I'm far more athletic now than I ever was as a child, which is, you know, that's a whole separate issue about how we think about things in high school. But anyway, um, so I'm playing, you know, I, I was so excited. I was playing goalie. 
Um, if anyone's ever played lacrosse or knows anything about like lacrosse or field hockey, goalie equipment, you need a lot of stuff um, because people are shelling very hard plastic balls at your head. So you've got a helmet and you've got all this other stuff. So my mom had bought me this really nice goalie bag as a reward for working hard at the sport. And I was, um, I was really excited and we're going on this trip and we, you know, we are, we stop at a Wendy's beforehand, um, you know, on the way because to go from Cincinnati to Columbus is a couple of hours drive. And, you know, everyone in all these vans is like 14 years old. So half the people have the metabolisms of like gazelles, which means that they need to eat, I think, you know, like the teenage, the teenager thing where everyone oh, yeah. eats like. I had to like have Totino's pizza rolls in the freezer at all times. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's it's very strange now to look back and just be like, "What? Who were we?" That was very strange. <laughs> but anyway, so we stopped at this Wendy's, and um, I'm with a teammate and um, the teammate's best friend and teammate's father. And um, it's weird because I was, you know, I it's hard to discuss, but you know, when you are mixed race. And sometimes, you know, my mom is white. My dad is black. Um, my dad was a retired, my dad's a retired research librarian who cares a great deal about the hawk who lives in his yard. And, uh, they keep chickens and bees and my dad loves formula one racing. And we'll talk about that or world war two to anyone who would answer. Um, he's like a dad, like most dad. Um, and, but my high school, you know, it's all girls, private school, uh, majority white. Um, you know, a lot of girls from um, Indian American households as well, but majority white. Um, and, you know, I, I was pretty used to that. You know, when you are in Catholic school, you're in these environments and, you know, you're just used to the fact that everyone else is white. And that's just how it is. That's kind of the er setting of your life is that, you know, the only, you know, I remember that, you know, the only other biracial person I knew was my own sister, um, which has changed now, which is awesome and great. But, you know, so we're at this Wendy's and I'm not going to, I didn't get anything because I was too nervous about the game. And I said to my teammate, uh, you know, like that just, it was, it's kind of funny because it was literally, you know, like it's a full Wendy's and I am the only non-white person there. Not just like the only black person, but like the only non-white person at all in a pretty packed place. And, uh, my teammate's father he chimes in and he says, you know, well, they're like cockroaches. Why would they be out in the daytime? And, you know, he added on that, like, you know, they scatter from the light. And I'm looking at him and he's looking at me and my teammates looking at her father. Basically, like, we're all just kind of like stunned. But it was funny because the, the emotion I felt most was embarrassment. It was as if me being black was something that I'd like, you know, successfully hidden from everyone. And that this one person, this one person had noticed. And he knew, and I obviously knew that he knew, and so did everybody else. And I felt so apart at a time where I really... I wanted to feel, you know, I was 14, you know, I, I had felt, you know, I felt very lonely at that time for a lot of different reasons, but I wanted to feel a part of something, which is how I had started playing the stupid sport in the first place. 
And in that moment, it was like, you know, I couldn't, I could join this team. I could go to this high school. I could get these grades. I could do these things. I could be the smartest and the shiniest and the most successful. And it would never mean anything because I was just some cockroach who played lacrosse with this guy's daughter. And I've never forgotten that because, you know, obviously it's not the most egregious example of racism that anyone's ever heard. But what got me was that he seemed to be saying this in a way that was like this, you know, he was like, he said it in the way that you'd be like, it's really hot today. Or, you know, the humidity levels are high. Or, you know, there's coffee on if you want some. Or the water is over there. As just sort of like pointing out just like a factual observation. And I felt so apart at that moment. And I think that that's something I've never really forgotten, the apartness. And I think that that's perhaps what's bothered me the most in a lot of respects in this is the apartness that I feel. And I think a lot of people feel, you know, when you see people on Instagram who are like, you know, you know, it's time to listen to black people. It's time to read these books. You know, I just got an email that's like the three books by black authors you must own. And I was like, the implication is that you didn't own them before. And now you got to be like, motherfucker, get on Amazon. It's time to get some books. And the apartness, the, the separation that you see, and it's the, you know, the result of housing policy and residential segregation and a lot of other things, but that's the result is the apartness that I feel and the, the sense that when we're having conversations about politics, what we're having conversations about is the politics of white people. And the politics of black people are the separate thing. People call it, quote, unquote, identity politics, because the politics of white people is just politics. And that apartness that I felt in that Wendy's of just feeling as if I was very much alone and very much unlike these other people, you know, that's something that's never really gone away from me. And I think that that's an important part of this conversation is that this is a conversation that people have been having for years. You know, people have been talking about um, policing and the actions of police, you know, for decades, specifically African-Americans. Um, you know, I would, I would draw attention to the work that's taken place since the 1970s and 1980s and the local level, you know, and police um, reform advocates in Atlanta and other cities who have often gone unheard unless they were saying the thing that happened to be agreed upon by um, the people in power. You know, sometimes when you talk about, um, you know, people are like, well, you know, the African-American community asked us to be harder on police. And I'm like, one, what is the African-American community? Because it kind of implies that like me and LeBron and Alan Keyes just all get together once a week um, <laughs> to actually, like, sit down. Uh, but also that, you know, when when people were asking that police officers not shoot people at traffic stops, people didn't listen to them. But then when it's like, we would like more good police in our streets because we're concerned about gangs. It's like, Oh, absolutely. And we'll also give you tanks. And so I think that that story for me, the apartness that I feel where you're talked about, but not listened to, or you're believed to be part of something that, you don't feel necessarily that you're a part of, but I guess you are anyway. You know, that sense of apartness 
it's never really left me of what that feeling is like. And it's moments like this, you know, these times where I feel it the most. And it's something that is, you know, it goes deep within our history. You know, it's, it's funny because um, if you go back and read a lot about Frederick Douglass, so much of Frederick Douglass's efforts was to bridge that apartness by making arguments that were not aimed at Black people. Because he kind of figured, like, I already know, you know, that's preaching to the choir, so to speak. But he is, you know, you see in his notes and in his writings, a real effort to tailor even his own personal life story to white people. His own personal life story, he needed to edit or change to make it the most appealing to white people. And, you know, if you read about the responses to his speeches, um, you know, during the abolition movement in the 1840s and 1850s, it is... It's not so much about what he's saying, but he knows, he's well aware that it's how he's saying it. And you, you know, you hear, you read, you know, newspaper reports from abolitionist newspapers that are like this beautiful ebony man telling us these things in these dulcet tones. And he's well aware that that's what's happening. He's well aware that the only reason people are listening to him is because he has tailored himself and his story to this audience that will look at him and talk at him and talk about him, but not listen to him. And he has to keep doing it for his entire life. And it's that apartness that I feel so distinctly right now that I and people like me, I guess, are being discussed or used as cudgels for one side or another. And that that apartness that I felt in that Wendy's is the, the real challenge here where, you know, people, when people are talking about you or talking about your politics without talking to you or thinking of you as being a, as part of a, a group that they do not think of themselves as being a part of a group. You know, it's, it's funny because sometimes you see people are like, well, you know, when you're talking about white Americans, that seems strange. I'm like, yes, doesn't it seem strange the other way as well? And, you know, that moment in that stupid Wendy's is something that I've, I've come back to occasionally during times like this, because I remember how unmoored I felt and how I would have given anything to not be in that moment, to not be that way, to not be who I was and who I am. And I think that that, that was, that's, that's been difficult. Jane. <clears throat> Jane. Thank you. Uh, and thank you, listeners, for joining us today. I don't think there's anything more to add to that. Really appreciate that, Jane. Thanks, Jane. Of course.